Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Cosima B. Concordia. And my name is Aurora Laybourne. Yeah, so um, I, I watched uh, Sallow or 120 Days of Sodom for the first time mm-hmm. this morning. And wow, did I have a bad time. I don't think I've ever had a worse time watching a film. What? Um, Oh, I was not expecting that. I was so excited. And I was just like, I'm like grinning like an idiot. And I was just thinking, man, I wish I could see her face right now. I'm so pumped. <laughs> okay, let's um, let's unpack this. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that it's not an incredible film. I just, um, I think the point of the film is to make you feel bad. Like, <laughs> we'll delve into the film itself, but um. I think the point of it is to both show the kind of infinite horror of fascism and then to also make you complicit in it or show your complicity in it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a rough, it's a rough time. Some of, it's a rough going. Mm-hmm. I felt really similar to um, the moments like when we talked about Mad God, when we talked about how every moment that there could have been a human connection or a kind of resistance, it's just immediately subsumed. It just disappears. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there's something really similar happening in Salo. Yeah, I completely agree with that, that the, the solidarity is is incredibly lacking. <laughs> And, um, and I mean, that, that's, that's also the point that within, with, under the horror of Mm -hmm. of fascism, even the ones being victimized, like the power makes everyone complicit. It strips away their humanity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Just by way of introduction, can I get a little bit into Pasolini's background? Because I'm obsessed with him. Yes, please bring us, bring us in, introduce us. So Pier Paolo Pasolini died very young, so he lived 53 years of age, and he was assassinated in 1975. So there's a lot of different theories as to why or how he died. He was also homosexual, so there's like thought that it's a, it's a hate crime, but his death is, I think, most interestingly and most compellingly linked to a series of interviews that he gave critiquing the Italian political scene. And also, so he was super critical of fascism. Like he was an anti-fascist, but he was also critical of the left as well because he saw fascistic tendencies creeping into the Italian left. So he always was a super polemic and super critical figure wrote a ton of poetry, gave interviews, wrote reviews. So his writing is like super prolific and his writing is super fascinating. He's most known for his films. So this includes Salo, which we're reviewing today. I feel like I'm really being a professor right now in professor mode, as well as really beautiful and highly sexualized adaptations of a lot of famous um, literary works. So he did A Thousand and One Nights, as well as the Decameron, which in their own day are also, if you read them, they, they still are super naughty, <laughs> um, super interesting as political critiques of their time. And then he ends up imbuing them with his own work or making them super relevant to the political context of the day. And I think that the politics still holds up pretty well. To an extent, uh, I think that I'm gonna we can put a pin in how race appears in his films because I don't I don't think that that stands up, but I do think that his his gender politics is pretty good and his critique of fascism is super super relevant, especially because he really takes no prisoners when it comes to the honesty with which he presents 
his beliefs or the courage with which he shares his ideas. So I think that his films have always been controversial. And I love him especially for his critiques of the academic world. I think Mm -hmm. that those are super, super relevant. What were his critiques of the academic world? Okay, so he saw a certain kind of complacency in the left when it came to leftists that were in academia because for him it was the duty of an intellectual to critique or to speak truth or the intellectual was uniquely situated given their commitments to learning and to knowledge to be able to witness problems in the political milieu and so he was super concerned with homogeny he was super concerned with the fact that you can no longer just look and tell a fascist from a non-fascist and that was something that he critiqued as a new face of fascism, a sort of faceless new fascism. I'm just going to pull quotes from this amazing essay that absolutely could be used, I think, as a foil to Suntog, because I think he has it right. I think that when you want to... So the essay is called The Power Without a Face, The True Fascism, and Therefore the True Anti-Fascism. So he begins his essay by asking, what's the culture of a nation? And for him, the culture is the drawing together of all sorts of different cultures. But he's very wary of when it just becomes the same, when it starts to become hegemonic. And for him, that is a sort of reification of an old power. And so the reinvention of older forms of fascism into newer forms of fascism. And so even though this new kind of faceless modernity is seen as super tolerant and everyone working together to be hyper-productive and to aspire to a kind of hedonistic ideology. He's critical because it's a non-thinking hedonism. And the tolerism is in fact false because in a homogenous space where everyone is the same and is aspiring towards the same ideas, then that is indicative of a lack of tolerance. So in a world where we're all assimilating to the same dream, we're not uh, living in a utopia of tolerance. We're living in a like utopia of intolerance. So we're living in this perfect space that's perfect because it fails to foster difference or for allow for for difference. And I love that. I love that he's able to, I think, really put his finger on this really insidious, um, I guess the insidious nature of assimilation or of a kind of respectability politics that I'm I'm sure also resonates with work that you've done. Um, It sounds very similar to how, yeah, like Lauren Bataille talk, like how, how would you distinguish that from say the folks who are like oh we should allow blatantly like racist and transphobic and homophobic speakers like deplatforming them is a attack on free speech he actually (laughs) addresses that in what was the last interview that he gave an interview that's and i'm getting goosebumps just like turning the page it was so exciting for to read this and i feel like i didn't quite answer that how he's critical of academics, but academics are just perpetuating that facade of, of tolerance that ends up actually making the possibility for new thought, for critique, for polemics that actually fosters radicality or allows for difference disappear. It's a facelessness, but it's a hegemonic facelessness, and it's so difficult to actually put your finger on it. In his interviews, the interviewer is really pushing him to define it, and he just can't quite articulate it because it is, it's almost as you find an example, the example shifts. It's very shape-shifty, and that's what's so horrifying about fascism. Mm -hmm. So for him, the, like, he's articulating what he sees his um, position to be or what he sees his duty to be. And for him, he, he says, 
Um, and he's critiquing the state of the left. And he says, well, at this point, I will allow anyone to laugh behind my back by saying that we, progressives, anti-fascists, and leftists, are also responsible for these massacres. And, and this is the violence in Italy. And while I'm super intrigued by... I wish I knew more about Italian history. I'm really obsessed with a lot of Italian philosophy and Italian music. I think that it, and Italian art, so the films of Pasolini, I think that they offer us really wonderful tools. And I wish I knew more about the context within which they arose. And that's something that I've been working to teach myself. So mm-hmm. forgive me for not having details on the, on the massacres. And so he says that in fact, we leftists have done nothing. So he's critiquing. So they've done nothing to prevent the talk around state massacres from coming commonplace. um, And thus they've done nothing to present it from stopping or or going any further. So there's just an inability to recognize the problem or an inability to coalesce around it. And even more serious, he says, we have done nothing because the fascists are not us. We limit ourselves to condemning them, gratifying our own consciousness consciousness with our indignation and the stronger and more inconsistent our indignation, the more clear our conscience is. So just by like drawing this clear line, so the left's inability to see their own fascistic tendencies, like their own um, ability or the possibility or the danger of them being assimilated into these structures of power that then become ossified and hegemonic, prevents them from being able to actually engage and critique with fascism. So if the left is just going around and saying they're just fascists and fascists will be fascists and we'll just um, be our own little camp and not doing anything to engage or to critique or to like both the fascists and then themselves, then all they will do is just allow fascism to exist on it, like both in its own. So it's just going to propagate, perpetuate, grow, and then also we're going to be sort of sucked into it. Because before we know it, suddenly we look exactly like the fascists. And for his example is that aesthetically, every, everyone just like dresses the same. There's no clear fascist aesthetic. There's no clear uh, leftist aesthetic. And we talked a little bit about this in the Sontag. So like if everyone's wearing three-piece suits, then what are we going to do? And so... I just think that that's really, really powerful. And I feel like I just got so sucked into this essay that I might have actually just missed your question. Well, I know that um, that Salo came out a couple of weeks after Pasolini was assassinated or, or killed, depending. Um, and like you said, you know, that like there's, it looks like there's various theories to what happened. It, it seems like it was by a, a gay prostitute. Pasolini was gay himself. But then there was also like, um, like death to communism was yelled. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and then there's also like possible involvement by the mafia. And it's, it's so fascinating to like think about also just like what it says about art that this like, gay leftist who made this film about how like basically (laughs) basically about the horrors of fascism and how we're all complicit in the horrors of fascism and how it's been one of the most reviled and banned films of all time by so many so many people and 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 I think especially if we look at like the the media landscape today with like these um you know coming of like this new puritanism where like sometimes even just the portrayal of things like things that don't even come anywhere close to a sallow, um, you know, is, is seen as, as a, uh, endorsement of the thing. Um, and Salo has a lot to say about, uh, also like the current state of art. <laughs> hmm Absolutely. There's something that's also very prophetic about his last interview. So he actually titled it himself so it's titled in danger because he critiques the way that people are in or unable to see things for what they are and he says intellectuals need ought to be able to um and so he shies away from the word truth 
but he wants to see things like authentically. He wants people to be able to find the best kind of evidence for their views or the best kind of evidence for critiquing the world. So he's pretty careful about his vocabulary, but he's critical of conspiracies and the fact that there's so many conspiracies around his death and the fact that then the film took on this like really important like social and cultural role is just so fascinating. And I just like, I can kind of get chills with this. And so he says, and I quote, we're particularly pleased with conspiracies because they relieve us of the weight of having to deal with the truth head on. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, while we're here talking, someone in the basement were making plans to kill us? It's easy, it's simple, and it's the resistance. So this, like, of making it a, a strange conspiracy of us telling all these stories or mythologizing it instead of just seeing it for the kind of act of silencing that it was, we maybe take away some of the ability for it to retake away some of some of what its meaning was so this is something i'm still thinking through but i just thought that, that was really a profound insight or i thought it was worth using his own ideas to understand his circumstance especially because like he seemed to be aware of the risk that he was in or he i think very intentionally might have taken it yeah like he ends the interview like this like i just wonder i'll just read the last line from the interview we can get into the the film. And so he says, I listen to them and all their little formulas and it drives me insane. They don't know what country they're talking about. They're as distant as the moon. And the same goes for writers, sociologists, and experts of all sorts. And so as the interviewer is asking him to further like delve into his views, then he sort of waves the, way, the question. He says, I don't want to talk about myself anymore. Maybe I've said too much already. Everyone knows that I pay for my experiences in person. But there are also my books and my films. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'll keep on saying that we're all in danger. I love that. That fascism is always at risk. Yeah. So then to to contextualize, like, like this is Pasolini taking, you know... Um, uh, the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom, and then utilizing it and, and changing it up in pretty dramatic ways, um, and uh, and then putting it also um, within the context of, of World War II and, like, Nazism. Which has its, like, a super complicated, fractured political landscape, both with the, like, with regards to northern and southern Italy, but then also the leftist movement versus the fascist movement and even the intellectual movement and student movements. It's just that it's just, it's all over the place. <laughs> so again, we're going to have to do an episode like, on Italian fascism. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> something that I think also hel helps is that I think that Pasolini is using Saad the way that Bataille, like in a way that's super in, in line with Bataille, because he's not lionizing Saad. He's, as you mentioned, like you, you watch this film to feel bad. And it's a remarkably beautiful film, like the, the shots and the colors and even the scenes of like extreme violation that is occurring like it's just it's done so artfully but you still like feel um this something that is like stronger even than abject or revulsion like it's a kind of like a fear yeah there is absolutely nothing sexy about this film it is um yeah i don't i don't think i've ever ever seen violation and um and horror like like portrayed quite so um affecting effectively <laughs> and but the the reframing solo in in italy and as a response to fascism ends up mobilizing sod in a way that i don't think could have otherwise been possible or i think uses sod in spite of Saad. And so like the one of the first scenes, I think even before the film starts is a 
bibliography. So, and included is, it's like Simone de Beauvoir, Must We Burn Sod? But he obviously did a ton of research, or this film was meant to explore the themes of authoritarianism. How do I say author? Authoritarianism. Authoritarianism. Yes. <laughs> Fascism, <laughs> corruption, greed. And also, like, I think, again, ac- academia and academics, like useless academics, academics that end up just perpetuating. Because there are all those strange scenes of the fascist, um, I don't know, members of the military, the fascist um, people that are collecting beautiful young people in their palace or castle in Italy to sexually exploit them. There's all these scenes of them fully dressed in their uniform, just like discussing Nietzsche, just like talking, talking philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Discussing who the quote is by, if it's by, mm-hmm. if it's by Baudelaire or Nietzsche <laughs> juxtaposed with the, the scenes of the horror before it, it, it is this, um, it's this reduction of horror to these, like, to what Shirley Lore would say is, like, talking about Nietzsche in a drone, right? <laughs> like, like um, truly uh, reducing the importance of the thing said to, to the most um, mundane while also, like, committing the most horrific acts. <laughs> Absolutely. And, like, every moment that they're could be a little bit of yeah of gentleness and i sort of began to talk about those scenes i'm trying to think if we've given enough background on the plot of the film um yeah well so i mean it's basically these fascists like rounding up a bunch of young people for whom to to bring into this kind of lawless fascist not festival, but um, like right of excess, I suppose. Yeah, like a retreat. Like I imagine that all business retreats are like this. Yeah, a retreat. <laughs> yes, it. Yeah, and I mean they. Yeah, and like when they first arrive, they're told, you know, like some of the young people like try to run away and they're like gunned down, and and the ones that um do make it, they're you know they're told that like when you enter, that, like this is complete. Like, there is no law here. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't expect to access the ridiculous freedom of the outside world. One of the things that is so, so different from um, 120 Days of Sodom is the older women and the the roles that they play. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Something that is interesting about the source material is that it was actually unfinished. So, and I'll be honest, I haven't... Mm. Yeah, it's it's unfinished. It's interesting that this is, I think, the work that everyone knows of Saad, but it's it isn't actually fully realized. And what is published is the like the beginning and then notes. So that's the framing. Hmm. Like I haven't I haven't read any of 120 Days of Sodom in a in a long time, um, but from what I remember, I don't think of like the the storytellers who are like you know, who are, like, telling the titillating stories. Um, Like, the thing that's interesting about them here is that they're, like, while they are in some ways victimized by the the men and and definitely in a subsidiary position, they are also, like, very much fully, um, like, they're they're a part of the ruling class, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, like they, they seem like to be their wives and have this preferential treatment. Like none of the truly horrific things happen to them, even though the stories they're telling are of, are of these horrors. Mm-hmm. They enjoy it throughout the entire time. You know, they're like actively participating in it. Um, oh yeah. A, uh, which is very different from, from most of, most of the young people who are mostly very traumatized. Yeah. They're just reveling in the ability to see the terrible things that they've experienced occur on other people. So they're just de- delighted to be in a position to abuse people the way that they had been abused. Mm-hmm. 
one of the most disturbing parts of the film is that there are there's all of these different um, power structures going on at all times, and there's like constant um, that power <laughs> power is everywhere, and victimization is everywhere. Everyone is made complicit in it, even the most base victims. Like one tells um, one of the fascists that this woman has a um, is keeping a photo under her pillow, and then she's found to have the the um, photo under her pillow. So then she rats out these two women who are you know like having sex, and then they rat out um, this. Uh, this man who is sleeping with the maid. The first moment of like possible tenderness or the first moment where it seems like people are trying to be tender or trying to make sense of their situation is when the two young people like in the beginning are forced to get married. Like they, they pick them out and they're like, they want them to like copulate in front of everyone. And they're both like a little bit afraid, like they're super scared and very deer in the headlights as anyone would be in that horrifying situation and they just like start gently stroking each other like they're just trying to make the situation work because they're going to be killed if they don't and then the guards or the magistrate like immediately break it up and immediately like violently like rape everyone involved mm-hmm. well and then even on top of that like the first two magistrates come down and like rape both of them but then the other but then, like, one of the top guys comes down and then immediately fucks uh, one of the guys who's fucking either the bride or the groom. I don't I don't remember. But but it's just like 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 there's this constant um, ongoing like violation of of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that the, the men at the top, like, will also actively like choose to debase themselves so so for instance like there's at one point there's this woman who you know who's like naked and is serving and then um one of the men trips her and she falls and then proceeds to start or to rape her and um and then one of the main men does this whole kind of like act on showing everyone his ass and then like takes the place of the woman and is like, oh, my ass is better. Um, But then, like, enjoys the act next to the one who is most debased, even though he's at the top. And (sighs) I'm just thinking about the studs and, like, the rules that they have. They have to always be erect. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh talking about this film, but that was just, like, so... Those, Those characters were so ridiculous. But they're the ones that also just walk away. Like, after everything, like, after all of these trials and after... Some of them are the most vicious figures in the film. Like, the the cruelest. Like, even though they're... Like, a couple of them are, like, sleeping with the main men. Like, I feel like it was... It's one of the studs that trips the serving woman in that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And, I mean, it's also the stud that at the very end, after, like, all of the horror, like, comes to the... I'm pretty sure it's the studs who then have that, like very mundane scene where they like kind of dance together and one asks the other if he has a girlfriend and then Mm -hmm. just like talks about the girlfriend very casually like as if nothing like none of these horrific like rapes and murders just happened Mm -hmm. oh my my god something that i witnessed while i was waiting tables back years and years ago there was the, there were these two couples that came in the restaurant and like after a couple of rounds of drinks and I don't know what they were talking about but the women were having this like super intense conversation and at one point they were both just sobbing just sobbing and like one woman ha- like was leaning over the table and sort of cradling the other and they were like counseling each other and the partner of like the male partner of the one that was just like sobbing the most. And this was like in the middle of a restaurant at like 7 p.m. Like he just like stuck his hand like all the way down the back of her pants. And the men were just like talking about like lawnmowers like that. I could hear because the women like they were kind of whispering and they were like sobbing and they were just like so distraught. But just like the men were just like, oh, I bought a new lawnmower. And like the guy just had his hand all the way down the back of this woman's pants. And I just, yeah, 
are the straights okay? Are the straights okay? So like when the guard is like, oh, you have a girlfriend? Uh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. Oh my God. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. horrible and horrifying. Mm-hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Failure to, to recognize the humanity or pain of others is, I think, also a theme. It's, I think, probably more more of an obvious one. I feel bad just, like, stating that. But Well, like, when we were talking about Mad God, we talked about how, you know, in, in some ways it is like what Bataya was talking about and like the unlimited like horror without limit and and I do think that that's true in some ways I think maybe Mad God is closer to what Bataya is talking about in that instance because I think what Sallow is is it's just it's a fucking indictment you know like and it doesn't lead anywhere it doesn't lead you outside of yourself it doesn't lead you to to any sort of like religious plane it is it is like a mirror of how fascism is and the horror of fascism is something that we are always, um, that we are always at risk of. Yeah. It it was a fucking hard thing to watch. Well, like, like, do you have, um, do you have any thoughts on all the shit? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wish I did. I feel like all of the reading that we've been doing on excrement that I should have something very, philosophically insightful to say about the shit, but I don't. So much shit. <laughs> oh, the, God, that line where he's just like, feast, my love. Yeah, God, there is so much shit eating. Like, they have the feast of shit. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And they have that quote, uh, uh, Saudian atheism restored the divine character of monstrosity by reiterated acts, in other words, rights. So that they are participating in um they are creating this ultimate horror like like Pasolini very much understands in order to but then to go to go nowhere to know there is there is nothing you know there's there's just fascism the fascism eats itself right like like everyone is uh like at the very end um like when they are doing all of the murders, <laughs> um, they end up like starting to kill. Like once, once they've murdered all of the people on the lowest rung, they start to like bring that violence. Yeah, and it's I, I mean that idea that like fascism always eats itself. You know, it's it's always once once you destroy, once you purify and you get rid of the um, the diseased or the the impure, um, the not perfect, like you have to decide, you have to create a new standard because it's, it, Mm -hmm. it isn't stable by itself at all. It always needs the other. It it requires, it requires the other. Mm -hmm. Also the libertines refinement lies in being both executioner and victim. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and that's right after he, like he, uh, gets he tells the girl to to pee on his face and and i and and this is this is again one of the top men and um and i mean i think like that's the thing that like these top level fascists like they never experience the end harm you know like like they are never going to be mm-hmm. murdered they always maintain the power like they're never at risk in any meaningful way of being like, there's, there's never any sense of revolt. Um, but then they also, but then also part of, part of the rituals for them and part of the play is that, and in which they gain powers that they, is that they also debase themselves in, um, even as they also like degrade. They make themselves the sovereign exception. So it's a show of power to be able to do the thing that would mark someone else as other or as lesser, but to be able to get away with it. So even more so than being able to get away with violating someone else, but to be able to be violated in front of another person, as you mentioned, that scene of the woman who's like in chains serving, being tripped by the stud and the stud then begins to rape her and the magistrate. So he's, 
he's showing off um, his power. Yeah, no, you're totally, yeah, that's the perfect, the perfect explanation. <laughs> Thank you for, for articulating that because, um, yeah, it was eluding me. Um... Vile sovereignty. That's the fact of the, like, disgustingness or the obscene shows of, like, ridiculousness. Like, there's something that's, like, very ridiculous about the way that the magistrate just, like, bends over and just, like, like you mentioned, like, puts his butt out. It's comical and it's almost farcical and, like, super ridiculous. Um, Like, in front of someone that's, like, just sobbing and, like, having this extreme violence against them. It's more than just putting salt on a wound. It's shoring up their power. Thank you for pulling that example um, out of the film, because I, I really I like that analysis. I wrote down this quote. Um, it's seen those who don't enjoy what I do and who suffer the worst that provide the fascination of telling myself I'm happier than the scum they call the people. Wherever men are equal and there isn't that difference, happiness cannot exist. It aids neither the humble nor the unhappy. In the world, there's no voluptuousness that more flatters the senses than social privilege. That ultimate display of power exercised without, without limit, it is, it is like the, the sat to the satisfaction of, you know, these like, these people and ultimate power. And I, and I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I don't, I don't know. It's funny. Cause I, at the beginning, I was just like, I was all smiles and I was just like, so giddy about talking about Pasolini. And this is actually one of my favorite films for a lot of different reasons, but it, and it's on violence and there's so much I have to say about sexual violation and violence, but it's, it's, really difficult to know even where to begin or what to to pull from because there's no end of things to talk about about this film i don't know how you feel yeah i mean i think it it's fundamentally built in a way that like overcomes and and leaves us so that we are it is difficult to comment on and pull pull something neat out of you know because we are implicated in it like like the end um Mm -hmm. in the same way that every single character throughout the entire film is is implicated Mm -hmm. in some way that they're all they're all pulled into the power of fascism even as they're horrifically victimized by it there is there's also at the very end like as the viewers itself were also implicated like because the final acts of torture are done in this um in this courtyard Mm -hmm. sort of and lots of the top dog fascists are like watching through through these binoculars and sometimes they're watching close up and and they're watching through a window so it's like we see these through several lenses and so we only see like bits and pieces of the horror and then at other times they like switch the binoculars around so then we see like the full scene of the horror but with this kind of like almost like ironic detachment that like in watching the film um but also just in living in the society in which the film is demonstrating all those violences we're all pulled into to being a part of that violence it goes back to to Pasolini saying like the problem is is that we see the fascists as other we don't see them as as us (laughs) Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I definitely see that as a major problem um, on the left today, for sure. And I think, like, attitudes that make abolitionism incredibly difficult, um, where where people may conceptually have ideas, like abolitionist ideas, but then when it actually comes down to it, there's this idea that the world can be easily separated into the abusers and the abused, you know, the... Um, the Nazis and the victims. And while obviously like when you, when you watch Sallow, there is no equivocation to be made between the young people who are, who are ripped away from their homes and then are like forced to do all these horrible things and are violated in all these horrific ways. And these like older men who are holding the power and absolutely doing that. But that's the point is that, is that like the fascism 
and and violence and abuse it, it's a it's a process that um that is implicating of everyone involved mm-hmm. yeah, and, and it reproduces itself so if i can read a bit of a long quote from again this really awesome and super short but very like this is super dense essay it took me a long time to get through it and there's only a couple pages so the the power without a face so Pasolini says, in reality, we have acted with the fascists. I'm mostly speaking of the young fascists. As racists, we, as racists, have hastily and ruthlessly believed that they were predestined to be fascists and, confronted with this decision, we believed that there was nothing to be done about their fate. Let's not hide this fact. We are all aware in our true conscience that when one of our young made the casual decision to be a fascist, it was a groundless and irrational gesture. A word could have been enough to prevent this from happening, but none of us ever spoke with them or to them. We immediately accepted them as representatives of evil. Maybe they were 18-year-old young adolescents who didn't know anything about anything, and they rushed headlong into any horrible adventure simply out of desperation. And so he says, but we could not have distinguished them from the others. I don't mean from the other extremists, but from all others. That's our dreadful justification. In short, they are young people, just like others. Nothing distinguishes them in any way. So, and this is what he finds to be so horrifying about the new fascism versus the old fascism. So he says the old fascism, even with rhetorical degeneration, made people distinguishable. But the new fascism, which is anything but that, no longer makes distinction possible. It is not humanistically rhetorical, but pragmatic in the American way. Its goal is the brutal totalitarian reorganization and homogenization of the world. So, those are his words. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, like, back to, um, or to, like, Hannah Arendt's, you know, banality of evil that, um, like, you mm-hmm. know, we were talking on <laughs> last week how I would worry if, if fascism completely took over America um, more than it already exists, you know, for um, anyone who's not a citizen and, and, you know, lots of different types of people (laughs) Um, uh, Mm -hmm. that, that like lots of, lots of like people who like self-identify as progressives or liberals, like how many of them would immediately become fascists, you know, like, like in Germany, um, you know, Nazis were lots of them, believed themselves to be very normal people. Mm-hmm. He even mentions Eichmann in the last interview, so in danger, because he mentions the importance of contestation, since contestation has always been an essential act. In order to be meaningful, contestation must be large, major, and total, absurd, and not in good sense. It can't merely be on this or that point. So Eichmann had a lot of good sense. So what was he lacking then? He didn't say no right away at the beginning when he was a mere administrator, a bureaucrat. He might have said to some of his friends, I don't really like Himmler, but he might have whispered something the way it's done in publishing firms, the newspaper office, or in sub-government in the newsrooms. Or he might have objected to the fact that some trains had stopped once a day for the deported to do their business for bread and water, when two stops might have been more practical and economical. But he never stopped the machine. Like all those people that think that they're good people that actually could just could just lean into fascism if the they're only concerned with a very mediocre kind of goodness. Like thinking back to you know when Trump came into office and and how you know like lots of attitudes that were were certainly always present um, but became a lot more um, outwardly expressed that were uh, a lot of like the most privileged liberals, you know, were terrified by that and, and, you know, diagnosed like Trump as, as a, as a specific, um, as like the cause rather than a, a symptom of something that has always been present. And that like plenty of marginalized people already are very aware exists um, within, within our, you know, collective psyche especially within especially within whiteness and cis heteronormativity mm-hmm. um 
it was a horrifying thing to watch. And I feel like the more I learn about fascism and the more the more I read about it um, and social context, like the thing the thing that is so scary about it that I think no one is ever prepared for is how people think that the people in their lives are immune, you know? And that's just simply not true. Or that fascists follow rules. Yeah, or that fascists follow rules, exactly. And I mean, that's like <laughs> any liberal that believes in the marketplace, or any, just any liberal, but like, um, <laughs> if you believe in the marketplace of ideas, like if you believe in, de- in um, you know, polite debate, and and if you if you stick by these ideas of politeness, like the whole point of fascism is 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 to do is to do the shell game is to is to sneak things in erode erode the rhetoric um and slowly um mm-hmm. slowly change the frame until you know one day you look in the mirror and you're a fascist yourself if you aren't like actively resisting that from the get go um at every level <laughs> you know mhm um, and that's just terrifying to think about because Jesus mm-hmm. fucking Christ, like so many people, um, like lots of people I love in my life, you know, who I, the level of complicity sometimes, um, especially that they'd have, especially if something became normalized is just very, very difficult to think about. You can tell Pasolini, like has has read a lot (laughs) when they're encouraged to eat shit you know the justification is like your senses will gain new vigor you know like like also what could be worse than than breath without smell (laughs) (laughs) that like um this kind of like ultimate extravagance like to the point of like complete depravity of of like just shit and (laughs) and also like as a person who has a lot of tolerance for watching a lot of things like Jesus fucking Christ, the shit in this movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I can't handle it. Like, like it was so hard. <laughs> I have such difficulty. Like, like I am one of those femmes that like, don't want people to even talk about shit in my vicinity. <laughs> like, like it's not funny to me you know yeah like 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 it's like like I'm fine with piss I'm like I like blood I like I like spit you know like all of those things are great um but shit for whatever reason is like I have no interest in engaging with it like I am I am a I am a strict follower (laughs) of the taboo (laughs) you know like I I want I I want no discussion I have no interest um and and so that was, um, yeah, that was a lot in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because it's like I, like I have very little, um, like lots of times when when people in my life like have squick, like are squicky about like blood or something like that. Like I like to make fun of it, you know, like. And, and also spit too. Like, like, I just think like, why would you be weird about that? Like, Mm -hmm. like I just find it really bizarre, but of course, you know, people have, you know, like their, their tastes, it's, it's not a controlled thing. Um, but shit, absolutely not. Do not talk to me about it. Absolutely. Get the fuck Mm -hmm. away. You know, (laughs) um, even though here I am on a podcast talking about shit, a different kind of excrement if it's a theoretical one versus a <laughs> a practical one I think uh, yeah yeah that's that's fair that's fair the, the excrement as myth excrement as myth yeah so yeah I mean I think that this is an incredibly complicated incredibly difficult to watch film that is also incredibly necessary and I do think I do think people should watch um I would say not for the faint of heart and you know and I say that because I've been kind of taught that like oh you should respect people's like needs but like I like I it it feels like a very important film um in the way that it 
confronts you so utterly, you know, and and uh, and really hammers home that fascism needs to be resisted on every side at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it leaves you with a sense of pessimism that, like, for me, was actually very invigorating. I, like, I find like futility to be more of a challenge, or I find pessimism to be more of a call to action and more of a reason to find spaces to be hopeful than a reason to to not act. So that was my it's my optimistic or not optimistic. Um, oh. I there's a distinction to be made between hope and optimism. That's my hopeful takeaway. I yeah, no, I mean I, I love that for you. I don't I don't think <laughs> I don't think I um I definitely don't think I'm like that. Like like you know, all of the existentialist cries was like, you know, the first thing you have to admit is like, should I kill myself? <laughs> <laughs> like Camus well, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh that's I don't know. Um I'm, I'm definitely Nietzschean in, in the sense that, like, you know, like, meaning is something we create for yeah. ourselves and for one another. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, this, this film fucking got me and it got me into, like, a kind of dark place after, like, a kind of already difficult weekend. <laughs> so, like, exhausting weekend. So, um, yeah, I just, I feel very, I feel the weight. I feel the weight of it. Well, on that note... Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. And um, if you are listening to this episode, you are already signed up for the Patreon. So we love that. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. And um, you're you're the real MVPs. Um, thank you for listening. Leave comments and, uh, and you know, reach reach out to mm-hmm. us, rate us on, you know, Spotify or Apple podcasts or whatever, you know, like share, share the show with your friends. If, if you're getting yeah. stuff out of it, um, or even if you're not and you're just like a nice person mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh, I actually hate the show, but I yeah. just like, I just really like cozy and Aurora. You can, you can still share it with your friends. Um, just because mm-hmm. you, you like believe, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're just an angel. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new Just when my old dream crumbled so hell.